Hello, and welcome back to the East German Fashion History Podcast. Now, this is going to be a super-sized season two finale, where we're going to focus on all things denim. For the winter months, we'll be taking a break, but we'll be back in the spring for season three and expect to find special guests, roundtables, and just a general conversational vibe that explores topics about fashion the GDR both in the past and in the present and a special focus on the AFD. Now, if you're looking for a podcast to kick off the new year with, be sure to check out Made in Germany, Weimar Fashion. This dives deep into one of Berlin's most illustrious decades with a hard focus on the ready-to-wear garment industry, notable fashion houses, and the inevitable destruction of it all with the Aryanization of the textile, fashion, and publishing industries leading up to and through Kristallnacht and exploring the Nazi regime. In an era of fake news, echo chambers, algorithmic news feeds, and conspiracy theories denying the Holocaust, it is critical that we continue to research, expose, and report on the undeniable power that the Third Reich exercised across many industries throughout Germany. And the Berlin fashion industry is a great example of this. These stories provide evidence to further discount bunk theories, but also educate younger generations on just how systemically ingrained anti-Semitism was and the power that the Third Reich had and the Nazis held. From Weimar-era literature, fashion publications, film, and trusted secondary sources, I'll be piecing together a mosaic of Berlin's rich and complex fashion history with all of its intricacies. Now, like I mentioned, today is going to be a supersized episode, meaning this is content-rich and might deserve a closer listen. We're going to be looking at a slew of personal accounts from people who lived in the GDR, because I think this is a really great way to illustrate how the how cult-like the status was of denim and how coveted they were. It was. To follow this episode, please click on the episode link description for the script. And there are I think there are some additional show notes for you. And if you love all things denim and this topic just generally piques your interest, then I would highly recommend reading this German book, Jeans in der DDR by Rebecca Menzel. It's available on Amazon for $36.06. Lastly, you can follow me at The Artificial Silk Femme for updates on blog posts, season three, and made in Germany Weimar fashion. Now on with today's show. Since about the early 70s, denim, specifically Lees and, Le- Lees and Levi's, were two of the most coveted items in East Germany. But they were more than just a highly desired style staple. They were a gateway into the youth culture and the political expression of dissent. And while you may have read that Lees and Levi. Levi's were illegal or banned in East Germany, please note that this claim is incorrect. 
While they were forbidden in schools and some events or clubhouses, these restrictions were eventually lifted. Another important fact to note is that calling them jeans was perceived as too Western, so they were referred to as Nietenhose, Kotinohose, or rivet pants. Also, it was common in East German movies that whoever was playing the bad guy or antagonist would be wearing jeans. So the passive political undertone is quite evident. Now, within the general history of denim, we can't talk about jeans without exploring its inherent link to youth culture. Under the approval of the Socialist Unity Party, the German Fashion Institute launched a series of fashion shows, celebrity-endorsed campaigns, and even opened a chain of clothing stores, all aimed at appealing to a generation of teenagers towards the latter half of the 60s. In 1966, the Jugendweihe was a fashion presentation that showed a collection of fairly proper conservative styles for teens. In 1967, the wildly beloved Schlager stars, Schlager is a German-Austrian sort of country music, Chris Dirk and Frank Schöbel model for the Jugendmode, a youth fashion magazine, and that featured 80 looks for men and women. That's, that's quite a comprehensive collection. In 1968, the first Jugendzentren, a fashion-forward teen clothing store, opened. These were later referred to as Jumo or Jugendmode, and they opened up through, there were stores across the GDR. So this was, it was a pretty huge undertaking for the East German Communist Party to really appeal to their younger generation. Regardless if it's fashion in the East or West, ageism has always been a perennial source of discontent in fashion, understandably so. A personal account from Heinz W. W., who claimed he was forced to wear women's sweaters due to the store's lack of men's knitwear, remembers watching a fashion show on TV in 1971 and remarking, quote, I still haven't seen a fashion show where one shows something for those of us who are older. Fashion for young people dominates, but we're also around. For your information, I'm 46. Could you tell someone or could you tell Bormann, Lucy Kaiser, and the rest of the fashion designers about this? For those of you wondering who Bormann, as in Heinz Bormann, or Lucy Kaiser were, these were really the only two brand name East German designers not really connected to the German Fashion Institute who got to sell their clothes at their own stores as well as at Exquisite. For more information on them, specifically Heinz Bormann, Please circle back to season one, episodes two and three, and you'll find out why the West German fashion press called him the, quote, Red Dior. Quote, West jeans specifically, Lees and Levi's, were like gold in East Germany, but also a catalyst for change in conventional standards of dress and decorum, as this personal account from Ralf T. out of Leipzig attests. Now, if you didn't have family in the West, it was impossible to get jeans. Jumo, Jumo had Lee jeans for a time being. When I went to high school in 1969, you were sent home for wearing them. 
Four years later, this was over at the very least. People cared if you wore jeans to formal events. Of course, you had to wear the right jeans, and that those naturally had a limited availability. Once, I stood in line for five to six hours at Yumo. Luckily, when I finally got to the store, they had a pair left. Now, not only is Ralph's experience evident of a great example of how Denon obsessed the GDR was, but it's interesting because his story is not much different than one of today, where people all over the world wait in line for countless hours at places like the former opening ceremony, Nike, Kith, whatever era-defining of-the-moment retail experience for the latest sneaker or hype clothing drop. In the history of almost any mercurial fashion culture, in order for it to come to life, you need to have a highly coveted item that inspires a cult-like status and creates a demand so strong that it defines a generation. Denim in East Germany fits that prescription quite well. There was even a play, The New Sorrows of Young Werther, which is um, sort of a play on The Sorrows of Young Werther, a famous book by Goethe, story by Goethe. And The New Sorrows of Young Werther was written by Ulrich Plenstorff, and it was about a denim-clad protagonist who professes that jeans are, quote, an attitude and, quote, the finest trousers in the world. The protagonist forgoes the synthetic, poorly made GDR styles for the real thing. In a count from Dietmar K. out of Görlitz states, quote, Once I treated myself to something really special, a pair of Levi's unwashed. My dream pants cost 60 Deutschmark at Intashop. This was a store where you could only buy West German products with West German marks. I had a work colleague that always had West German marks and I traded mine in one to five was the exchange rate. So for 300 East marks, I got my dream jeans, which I would only wear for special occasions. 300 East marks was about half of my monthly income. Now, if you didn't have the money or connections to get a pair of jeans from the West, your next best option were knockoffs. And it was Vietnamese guest workers who came over and created their own lucrative side business of recreating elegant imitations of Levi's. Here's an account from Peta Jot out of Schwedt. I had my own, quote, individual Levi's that a Vietnamese friend had sewn. Their apartment was packed with orders, but as long as there was room for a Singer sewing machine and a fabric, it worked. Of course, each pair of Levi's has a different serial number. With these knockoffs, me and my friends all had the same serial number, but we didn't care because every detail was identical to the original, and in our minds, we had the real thing. In terms of home sewing jeans, as we've explored, DIY was essential to the GDR fashion culture. This was another alternative if you couldn't have them copied. And there is one issue of Pramo, Praktische Mode, it was a home sewing fashion magazine that prominently features a pair of jeans on the cover. So they most likely had the pattern inside. I'd love to get the original copy of that magazine. 
Information on how to sew them and insider tips of applying the rivets with pliers and hacks like wearing your jeans in the bathtub or in the Baltic Sea to help break them in. All of these exclusive insider tips further help create that cult-like status of denim. Now, given the demand for denim from the West, in 1974, the GDR released non-branded styles of neat and hose or rivet pants. And that same year, they also launched a slew of label, of designer label denim with brand names like Boxa, Vizent, Shanti, and Goldfuchs. Their quality does leave something to be desired. They don't match the originals from the West, but they were still high in demand and were available at retail stores like Yumo. Sabina L. from Wittenberg recalls, there were a variety of denim brands made out made here. Boxa and Vizent were the most well-known, but you also had Bison and Goldfuchs. Goldfuchs came from Zwickau, which was considered more elegant. Boxa was of the best quality and cost 120 marks. Vizent was cheaper. The more you wash the, your Boxa jeans, the better they looked. And in general, imports for raw materials like cotton were hard to come by. So these jeans were usually contained synthetics, lots of synthetics. Now, Boxa jeans were known to be a little stiff as Doris Ha from Gustrow recalls, quote, I had a pair of boxas. The material was really stiff, so I had to use a brush to soften and wear it down. West jeans in the Inta shop weren't possible if you didn't have Western relatives. So I really had to save for my boxas. They were more than a hundred marks. And as an apprentice at my job, I got 190 marks monthly. So it was really quite expensive. Now, as we've learned in our journey through exploring the story of fashion in the GDR, there are often bits of irony that come about. And this last piece to our story of denim really hits it home. The GDR denim label Vizent came under fire by Levi's for plagiarism because of the identical proportions of the pocket seam. Negotiations dragged on, but their production still continued. Interestingly enough, in late November of 1978, East German communist leader Erich Honecker signed off on a deal to import one million pair of jeans that were sold at selected universities, companies, and even the Ministry of State Security. It's unclear why he signed off on this, because let's face it, ideologically, this is everything he's been against. The East German Communist Party worked with the fashion industry to orchestrate one of the biggest design and manufacturing denim industries they could. They held fashion shows for youth clothing. I mean, aside from youth clothing, they came up with five different denim brands and these were sold across all of Germany. Patterns were also sold at Pramol. So the fact that they decided to then suddenly buy one million pair of Levi's jeans is highly ironic. Maybe it had something to do with the negotiations and he wanted to smooth things over. 
either way, I think it's an interesting note to to end this this episode on. And that's it for today and for season two of the East German Fashion History Podcast. Now, I really want to thank all of you for tuning in these past two seasons. I really hope you learned something. I know sometimes or oftentimes the material was very dense, but when I mean content, I mean content. And I think that this this podcast really is looking to broaden your perspective, my perspective as well, on fashion, textiles, material culture, and how that really explicates what fashion, what life was like in East Germany. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Auf Wiedersehen.